0: Sexual abuse is one of the worst things that could ever happen to anyone, and it's even worse or compounded, made more complicated when it occurs in a local church because of the assumed protection and safety that we expect among God's people and so when it does happen in a local church you do want to respond appropriately to all parties involved there are three specifically the abused of course the abuser obviously and then the local body in this episode of life over coffee i want to share with you 10 practical considerations when abuse happens in your local church Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Life Over Coffee. I am Rick Thomas. I am thankful that you are here. This is episode 370. The title of it is A Practical Response to Sexual Abuse in the Church. Now, some of the things, most of the things that I share with you will have application in other venues. But I want to speak specifically to when sexual abuse happens in the local church. Now, I have written a ton on this subject of abuse and victimization, and if you want to read more articles, then I would encourage you, you, you can go to three topics uh, on our website. One it would be abuse, the other would be victim, and then the third one would be sexual. And if you type those three things— uh, one at a time, in our search box, then you will get a plethora of articles on those three subjects of abuse, of victimization, and uh, sexuality. Now also in the show notes here, 370, I have a lot of embedded links, and I've done that intentionally because this is a big deal. And if this has happened to you, if this is going on in your local church, then you really want to exhaustively understand what is going going on, and you want to get all the help that you possibly can, and because we have produced so many resources on this subject, I want them to be right in front of you, and so you can check out these embedded links. But also you can uh, type in those three words, individually, abuse and victim and sexuality, and you will pull up a ton of articles that will help you. I also want you to reach out to us. Of course, the number one thing that you want to do is talk to local civil authorities when abuse happens and the leadership of your local church. Those are the people that you want to be speaking to primarily. But if we can add to, if we can supplement in any way then we, we're here for you. We're not just a monologue ministry where we're producing content like this episode and, and putting it out there in cyberspace, which we love to do. We love to serve the body of Christ that way. But we're also a dialogue ministry, and we have free community forums that are available to anybody in the world. It won't cost you a dime. There's no hook. There's no catch. There's no trick. It is actually free. All you have to do is fill out your username and password. And if you want to be anonymous, then just change your username and make your username whatever you want it to be. Call yourself Sunflower. It doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is that we are able to serve you. We want to help you practically of understanding whatever's going on in your life, whatever question that you have, where you want a biblical response to it. This is what we do. We equip Christians to help other Christians that is our mission statement and so I want to share with you 10 things when sexual abuse happens in the local church many of these will apply to other contexts as well but this list that I'm going to give you two things one it's not exhaustive and secondly it's not in order of priority I am sure that you can add other things to this list. Let me get into it. Number one is influences. I'm talking about your shaping influences. When a person hears about something like as dramatic as sexual abuse, if they have been influenced in dramatic ways themselves, like say they were sexually abused, they can respond in an overreactive way. It is important for those that are leading the charge as they're investigating and bringing care to a sexual abuse situation that they do so objectively. And there are two extreme responses to this. One can be the highly emotional subjective response where the person maps their past horrific experience Over what is going on, and they lose objectivity. The other response is that people can ignore it. They can ignore it for many reasons, I suppose. For example, they can ignore it because of incompetence. That does happen. They can also ignore it because they're more interested in their own reputation or the church's reputation that they want to keep it on the down low. Sovereign Grace Ministries made this mistake as they hid, basically, I mean, they hid uh, sexual abuse in their local church for many decades, and eventually, a few years ago, the person was brought to justice and got 40 years behind bars because of the sexual abuse, but Sovereign Grace did not want to uh, bring that out to the light. They wanted to handle it internally, and they totally botched it up, and uh, many lives were damaged because of their mishandling it, and so we want to make sure that we don't err on either side of that to where we ignore it or uh, try to keep it on the down low, or we overreact because of maybe something horrific that happened in our lives. There is a temptation to map our experiences over what we are trying to work through in another person's life or in another situation, and you don't want to map your experience over it. You want to be objective. There has to be some distance between you and what is going on, and that is a good thing. Jesus had the ability to be detached from what was happening in front of him, detached in the sense that he was not managed by the event or the individuals who were bringing cases and situations to him, and so he had appropriate biblical detached objectivity. And so you want that kind of objective detachment that allows you to see things more clearly but then you also want to be courageous as you insert yourself into this situation, not ignoring it, not uh, putting it on the down low. But no, you need courageous leadership. And so you don't want to err on on either side. now if if you can't do that in the most objective way possible, then you want to make sure there are other people that are on point. And so, Number one here is how are your past shaping influences tempting you to skew, to interfere with basically what is going on with sexual abuse in the local church? Number two, when I think about abuse that happens, I try to frame my thoughts around how I would respond to it if it were one of our daughters. And I have found that very helpful, not just in the situation of sexual abuse. Now thankfully, neither of our daughters have been abused sexually, but in other situations as well. For example, I had a ministry leader come to me in Colorado. Uh, a few months ago in uh, children's ministry leader and they asked me how would i respond if uh, their local ch- if a local church was accommodating trans people well i answered this lady and again i framed it as thinking about well, what would I do if our local church accommodated trans people, meaning a boy could pretend to be a girl, he could put a dress on and go into the girl's restroom, and I, one of our daughters was in there. You see, when you frame things as happening to someone that you love with all your heart, someone who is very close to you, it will it will appropriately, it should appropriately uh, intensify the situation to where you really think through this thoroughly because now you have skin in the game if you frame it that way. Uh, Perhaps some of you have heard the alleged incident that happened in Loudoun County, Virginia, just a few months ago, where a boy did uh, pretend to be a girl. He identified as a trans person. He went into a restroom and allegedly uh, allegedly. Uh, he uh, raped a girl, and so this stuff does happen, and we don't want to detach ourselves from it. So number two, as I think through this, I, I don't want to think of it as something that has happened in Loudoun County or something that has happened on the other side of the country. I want to think about my own family and those people that I love dearly, and, and that will hopefully motivate us to uh, think about it in practical terms and, and in a comprehensive way of what would we want to happen if this was uh, one of our children. So number two is how we frame it. Number three, you really gonna have to define your terms. What does sexual abuse mean? You see, sexual ab- abuse, abuse for, for that matter, is a, is a creeping bracket term, meaning the bracket continues to expand and it encompasses so many things. And so when someone says there's sexual abuse that has happened, you don't dismiss that, uh, you, you don't marginalize or trivialize that, but you do have to know exactly what happened What did the person do? Now, this is where objective and courageous leadership, because you don't want to get it wrong for the abused. I mean, for example, you could not do the investigation well, and what happened is more severe uh, than what you know. Or uh, you could accuse the person of doing something that they didn't do. And so you have to define, you have to get the meaning of sexual abuse when uh, someone says that they have been sexually abused or they know someone who has been sexually abused in context of this podcast I'm talking about in the local church. Be precise, be exact, be objective. Number three, what does the accusation mean? And again, that is not connoting. I am not uploading that with any kind of discrediting, any kind of suspicion. I just want to know exactly what it means. And then number four, you have to investigate. Now you know what happened. How do you know it happened? Because what you'll... When it happens in a local church or any context where there are many people, uh, there will be firsthand knowledge, and there will be hearsay, and there will be gossip and conjecture, and be a, the grapevine will be very active, and so this is going to take more courage. Not only are you defining the term to find out exactly what happened, but there is a deeper level. How do you know? And as you move into this kind of investigation, you want to make sure that you care for the abuse, but being accurate is of utmost importance. And so is this something that you saw? Is this something that you heard from a third party? Have you talked to the person who was abused? Have you talked to the abuser? You want to get firsthand information. Knowledge, number four. Number five, what are the ages of the victims? Okay, if they're under age, remember, if it's under age, then this is not just a sin. This is also a crime. A crime has been committed, and you have to contact the the police in a matter like this. And so what are the ages of the people? So not only what happened— What does sexual abuse mean? But how do you know it happened, hearsay or firsthand knowledge? And as this evidence becomes clearer to you, and then the ages of the people that's involved, well, now you know what you have to do. And it's not just a sin, but it is a crime, and you need to talk to the police, and then in the context of the local church, there's a matter of protecting those who have been abused. What you don't want to do is to put the perpetrator inside the church building uh, from that point forward. They can no longer be part of that local church as far as being in uh, the church building because you want to protect the victims. You do not put an abuser now, now, in the context of this podcast, we're going to say that sexual abuse did happen. It was sexual abuse. I know it happened. I have firsthand information now. Well, you don't want to put that perpetrator in context or where they can connect with the victim, the person that they have, they have victimized. They can't be part of that church any longer. I mean, they can be at home, and they can watch online services. But let's say that you were the parent of a child that was abused sexually and Let's say this child is 16, and the child drives to the youth meeting on, on Sunday evening by herself, and then this individual happens to the abuser, the sexual abuser happens to show up at the church building, or, and you're not there. Do you want that to happen? No, you don't. You want your daughter to be absolutely protected. That means that your daughter can't be in any context where the person who sexually abused them is, and that means that the perpetrator of the crime can't be part of this local assembly as far as attending. Again, they can watch services online, but you have to provide ongoing care and accountability for the person who has been abused, but also for the abuser, there has to be accountability so there's no connection with the person that he has victimized. And in addition, you also want to contact an attorney or a local advocacy group to gain their perspective and their experience on how to care for victims. You want to make sure that you do this thoroughly. And if this is, something that has never happened before, then you want to get all the information that you possibly can. And so talking to an attorney and saying, hey, when this happens, what are some considerations? What are some things that we need to do? You see, there are consequences for sin, and when the sin is at this level, when It's this kind of heinous sin that's happened to someone. You say, well, we don't want to hurt the person who abused them. We want them to be part of our local church. No their consequences for sin. Not only can they not be part of this local assembly, but you want to talk to an attorney. You want to talk to a local advocacy group. You want to gain their perspective and their experience for caring for victims, not only caring for the victim of the abuse, but for protecting the church, You don't want this to happen again, whether it's this abuser or the next one that comes along. And so if something, if there was a, we didn't have the protocols in place, we didn't have the accountability in place, the protections in place, we want to make sure that we are fortifying ourselves so that this never happens again. Now, just one aside, talking about advocacy groups, I would strongly appeal to you to stay off Facebook groups and other social media. Media platforms where victims gather. Many of these platforms are toxic, and you can be drawn in because they're so cynical and so loud, and they haven't worked through their own abuse to where they can't detach themselves. They haven't detached themselves in an objective manner where they can care for people, and that some of these groups are so toxic that you don't want to get sucked into them. And so I just urge you not to get into these social media platforms where there are so called advocacy groups for the victims of abuse because uh, it will, it can harm you and your. Uh, desire to learn how to take care of victims, and if if you have been victimized, uh, well, it can do great damage because it can harden you into a victim mindset, which, again, I've written a lot about that. I won't comment on that now. But point number six is that you want to do everything within your power and knowledge and even borrow brains so that you can protect the victim of abuse. Number seven is accountability. What are the accountability measures to bring the person to repentance? Church discipline would probably be an option. Prosecution could be an option, depending on what we're talking about here. Remember, there are consequences, as I mentioned earlier, and so intrusiveness into his life, into his devices, uh, to see if there is a sexual history, into his friends and his family. You also, as far as accountability for the abused is concerned, you want to incorporate the entire body of Christ for the abuser. Let's say that he's not attending, he's not coming on the property anymore, but he's watching the meetings. Uh, online meetings, as far as the church services are concerned. Uh, You want to have men, if it's a man, you want to have men around him, or if it's a woman, you want to have, uh, you want to continue to care for them because you want to uh, bring them to repentance, but you want to keep them separated from the victims of the abuse. Uh, You would also check a sexual predator website to see if they're on that list. And so, again, talking to an attorney, talking to uh, an advocacy group, a local advocacy group, if you have one in your area, you want to make sure that you go through all the investigatory measures uh, for accountability to this uh, individual, number seven. Number eight is uh, repentance now with repentance sometimes when you uh, talk to a person who's been caught they will repent and that is a dubious when we use that word repentance in a haphazard way uh, it's it's really irresponsible there are several things that are going on here. A lot of times when a person's caught, they have remorse. It is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. They're, they are just remorseful because they got caught. But we can label that as repentance, when in actuality, it is not repentance. They're just sad that they got caught. But then there's a second uh, angle here to repentance. There is a difference between repenting of an event and repenting of a lifestyle. Those are two different things. And if a person is at the level of sexually abusing someone, that is not something that just happened that's disconnected from a heinous lifestyle, as though this is the first sexual type sin that they have committed. There's a 99.999% chance that there is a history, a sexual history, a sinful history in this person's life. And so when you say, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, he repented. And it's like, oh, well, he, he's transformed. He's changed. No, he's not. And what they're really saying is is that uh, he's repented of this event but you even want to explore that to see if that's true has he really repented or is this just worldly sorrow he's sad because he got caught but even if he has legitimately walked through the repentance process for the sin event meaning that that he is working out He's being honest in confession and working out forgiveness. He has not repented of a lifestyle. I mean, per chance, God has miraculously just zapped him, and and he's not going to have any kind of sexual sin and deception in his future. But that is probably not what is going on here. And so when you think through repentance, you have to think through these three things. One, is it worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow? Two, if is he objectively repenting of an event? And then three, you want to get into a lifestyle because, again, there is a 99.999% of a chance uh, that there is a historical lifestyle of sexual sin in his life. And so you want to do that kind of investigation about pornography, or maybe he was abused, and maybe she was abused in her life, and, and this is why that she does that. But then you also want to get into the word cloud that gloms on to sexual abuse. For example, if a person sexually abused someone, then he is a liar, too. He lives in deception. This is one of the sins that gloms on to sexual abuse. You can't be a sexual predator without being a deceiver, without being a liar, and that's why it's so important that you want to get inside this repentance to see what it is, worldly sorrow, godly sorrow, repenting of an event, or repenting of a lifestyle, because the person is a deceiver. The person lies. He has been living a lie for many years, covering his tracks and living a dualistic life, a hypocritical life. Uh, He has a public persona and a private persona because of this sexual history. And so this duality, this dichotomy that he has created inside of himself, that there is a sexual abuse event that happened, there's probably a historical lifestyle of sexual sin, and there's definitely a lifestyle of lying and deception because he has to cover his tracks, and then you're gonna find a hardened conscience. You see, his internal moral thermostat is his conscience, that inner voice that tells him that this is wrong. But if he continues to do it year after year, decade after decade, then his conscience is also hard. And so, when somebody says, here's the point when somebody says that they have repented, be careful. I mean, yeah, praise God, love believes all things, but don't be dumb. Don't be naive, do the work. This gets back to objective courage that I talked about at the very beginning. Number eight is repentance. Number nine is shepherding. You have to have a family meeting with the church. These are more consequences. I know it's hard. I know it's dirty. I know it's ugly. I know no one wants to go there. But the church needs to know what happened. If I found out that our local church, that there was a sexual abuser in our local church and someone was r- r- raped or molested in some way, and the church did not bring me up to speed and our daughters are going there on a regular basis, I'd go through the roof. I mean, the, the church, there needs to be a family meeting, not with the attendees on, on Sunday morning where, you know, this... Someone shows up at the church meeting for the first time. They don't need to be privileged with this, but a family meeting, the members of the church bring them together, and you don't talk, you don't share the names of those who are abused, but you share what happened. The leaders have to be courageous at this point because you don't want it hap- You don't want it to happen again, and I want to know. I mean if it happened, I want to know and I want to know what st- I want to know why it happened. Now maybe there's nothing the church could do, could have done. I mean you, you can't guard against every sin that happens. That's not possible. and so we don't want to overweight this to where the sin is uh, the church is culpable with no exceptions. No you can't I mean if a person wants to sin, they can sin anywhere they want to, no matter what the protocols are. But you want to know what those protocols are when it does happen, because you don't want to happen, again, are my daughter, are, are our daughters protected? Are your daughters protected? Are, are there things that we can change and do? But but not just that, we, we want to make sure that the victims of the crime, the sin, that they're being cared for, and you want to have a team of folks that are helping them to walk through that. And if it's a prosecution, prosecution type uh, event, then this is going to be a long-standing event where you have to walk the church through that, because there's going to be a greater public awareness, because it wasn't just a sin, it is, it is a crime, and then also uh, you want to do the shepherding that's involved with the church family uh, so they know that this is a place where they can come and this is an, an anomaly. This was an outlier. And this is something that probably will never happen again. The shepherds have to step up and they have to do the courageous work of shepherding. And then finally, number 10 is this idea of conflating. And I've seen this a lot where you conflate grace and compassion with a lack of comprehensive investigation and accountability, and some people say, well, we don't want to be harsh, we don't want to be unkind. We don't want to draw attention to this. we you know, we don't want to get too involved in it, and you can marginal we want to be gracious people. We, we, we believe in grace. We're not legalistic. We're not punitive. We're not judgmental. And we can overreact to this by not doing comprehensive investigation and accountability. Actually, it is grace and compassion if you are comprehensive. If you're not comprehensive, that's not grace and that is not compassion if you don't offer accountability intrusive accountability that's neither grace nor compassion because the perpetrator of the crime needs that kind of grace he needs god's grace in his life and you can be a minister of that grace this is episode 370 a practical response to sexual abuse in the church this is not exhaustive if you want to talk more please jump on our forums